Welcome to Status. I am Malihe Razazan. The award-winning journalist Ben Ehrenreich spent three years traveling and reporting from the occupied West Bank. I don't believe in objectivity. I do believe in truth. I do believe that journalists have an obligation to be as absolutely rigorous as they can be. And, you know, there are things that everyone says again and again that can't be verified. And sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not. And rather than, than some sort of false objectivity, what I can do is be as transparent as possible and tell you what I know and what I don't know and what I can verify and what I can't. That's where the journalist's obligations lie. In his new book, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine, he details the complexities of everyday life under occupation and the specific mechanisms of what he calls, quote, the giant humiliation machine, end of quote, that controls Palestinian lives. Ben Ehrenreich is an award-winning journalist and author of two novels, Ether and the Suitors. His latest book, The Way to the Spring, is based on his three years of reporting from the West Bank. He started our conversation by reading an excerpt from his book. Telling the stories that I am telling, choosing certain stories and not others, means taking a side. This is unavoidable and only a sin to those standing on the other side. No spectators at Chasm's door, wrote the great Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, and no one is neutral here. Not anywhere, but especially not in Palestine. I do not aspire in these pages to objectivity. I don't believe it to be a virtue or even a possibility. We are all of us subjects, stuck fast to bodies, places, histories, points of view. Insistence on objectivity is always, Franz Fanon observed more than half a century ago, directed against someone. For Fanon, that someone was the colonized, the marginalized, and the oppressed. The truth of this soon becomes clear to any journalist or any morally sensitive individual who chooses to work and live in the West Bank. Simply to refer to it by that name, rather than as Judea and Samaria, to call it Palestine rather than Eretz Israel, is to already be involved. And to base oneself there, rather than in Tel Aviv or West Jerusalem or Washington or New York, is to enter the conflict, whether one wishes to or not. If the nature of this choice is at first not obvious, the soldiers at the checkpoints can be counted on to quickly make it so. That is part of the introduction to your book. And you clearly say that you're not after offering a so-called objective representation of the place and its people. So you're a longtime journalist. You've reported from war zones in Afghanistan and Haiti, I believe. When it came to going and reporting and writing about Palestine, is that when you decided that you really need to leave this so-called journalistic objectivity aside and you really have to approach this place in a different way? Or this is something that you have believed all along as a journalist? It's something I've believed all along. And to my relief, I had a conversation with Ed Wasserman, who's the head of the UC Berkeley Journalism School, a week and a half ago, and he said that they don't teach objectivity anymore, which is a relief, because I think objectivity as a a journalistic virtue has always been used to disguise one's actual politics. You know, we see it very frequently in the mainstream news outlets, where through the veil of objectivity, they're able to hide you know, really clear and powerful biases towards power. 
you travel to many, many places in the West Bank and you spent more time in certain areas and cities and villages than others. Throughout your travels, you heard stories from Palestinians, but you sometimes said, I have seen this being retold or repeated by many other people, but I personally cannot verify that. Why did you have to say that? I say later on in that same introduction, I don't believe in objectivity. I do believe in truth. I do believe that journalists have an obligation to be as absolutely rigorous as they can be. And, you know, there are things that everyone says again and again that can't be verified. And sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not. And rather than than some sort of false objectivity, what I can do is be as transparent as possible and tell you what I know and what I don't know and what I can verify and what I can't. That's where the journalist's obligations lie. In this book, you were after finding out the truth. You did some research, of course, before going to Palestine. But what did you know about Israeli occupation and Zionism before you set foot in Ramallah? Before the first time that I went in 2011, I certainly knew more than, considerably more than your average well-informed American reader. Mm -hmm. I'd read as much as I could about the conflict and the occupation, but I was nonetheless really powerfully moved and disturbed when I got there by how bad things were, by how immediate and intimate the transformation of the landscape was, really the brutalization of the landscape by the occupation, the presence of checkpoints, of walls, of settlements on every hilltop, of surveillance infrastructure everywhere. And I think I was also really astounded by the pace of things in a way that nothing I'd read prepared me for, that things were always happening. And, you know, when you live there, it no longer feels fast. It just feels constant. In that brief period, that first time that I was there, land confiscations, home demolitions, arrests, you know, pretty much everywhere I went, something seemed to be happening. Either I spent time briefly in the Jordan Valley and a family was being dislodged from their home by settlers in the settlement across the hill who had decided to camp just outside their property um, Mm. to intimidate them and chase them away, settlers with automatic weapons. In Nabi Saleh, the village outside Ramallah, where I would later spend a great deal of time in the period that I was there, Basim Tamimi, who I would later come to know quite well. When I met him, he was in hiding. By the time I left, he'd been arrested. You actually met him in Ramallah while there were protests going on. It was during the 2011 Arab uprisings. Yeah, I mean, really just by chance, the first day that I set foot in the city of Ramallah was March 15th of 2011. And that day would later become memorialized in the name of the small activist movement called the March 15th movement, which chose that day to stage protests around the West Bank and also in Gaza. And it had been two months since the beginning of the Egyptian revolution Everything all over the Middle East was very rapidly changing. And it was a moment of great hope in Palestine, too. I think there was some hope that it would break the paralysis that had for so long kept people stuck. And that movement was their cause, as they articulated it, was to end the division between Fatah and Hamas and to create a unified front against the occupation both in Gaza, where Hamas is in power, and in the West Bank, where Fatah is in power, the movement ended up being repressed by the powers that be. 
who I think correctly understood it as a threat to their own authority. Yeah, Palestinian uh, authority, yeah, you mean. Yeah. yeah. They beat up some of the protesters. They yeah. arrested them. So you went to the West Bank in 2011, mm-hmm. and you were on a project for Harper's Magazine. You were going to write a piece about water issues yeah. in the West Bank. And then you went back again in 2012, mm-hmm. and this time you were going to report for the New York Times Magazine. And in 2013, the New York Times Magazine published your article, which was called, If There Is a Third Intifada, We Want to Be the Ones Who Started It. And this is about the village, Nabi Saleh. That long feature piece got a lot of traction and a lot of responses in the US. How did you decide from writing just articles about Palestine to writing a book about Palestine. Well, I did want to tell their stories. I didn't want to play the role of the white guy representing Palestinian voices. Mm -hmm. I had two purposes. One was to describe these realities and tell these stories to an audience that for the most part is not exposed to them. Because it was really clear to me, and the more time I spent there, how tiny an aperture America is allowed to view the situation there through. And it's mainly through Israeli perspectives. Mm-hmm. And the day-to-day realities of Palestinian life are, for the most part, completely invisible from the U.S. When Americans get to see Palestinians, it's as terrorists or as corpses, for the most part. And the absolutely insanely complex structures of the occupation and how it functions, if they're understood here at all, are understood simply as a machine for the security of Israelis, which is not, in fact, I believe, its purpose. So I did want to correct that imbalance and give an American audience an opportunity to really see this and thought that I was in a a unique position to be able to do so. Do you think in the past few years there has been a shift in the way the Palestinian story and the occupation has been covered in the American press. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly when I got that assignment from the New York Times Magazine, I was shocked that they were willing to, as I pitched the story to them, it was, I want to go spend time in this Palestinian village and write about things not within the frame of an Israeli security analysis, but just write about this resistance struggle on its own terms. I was completely shocked they went for it. I think a couple of years earlier that wouldn't have happened. Mm. You know, even the fact that this book is being published by a big press, I think. That's what I was surprised. Actually, I was looking at your previous novels, and they were by small publishing houses. And this one is published by Penguin. Yeah, and I think a big press like Penguin wouldn't have taken a risk on this book if they didn't think that there was an an audience for it. And I think there's been a slow process over the last eight or nine years by which what it's possible to say in the U.S. press has gotten broader. There used to be, there was no issue in which censorship in the U.S. press, it's not a word we like to say in America, Mm -hmm. we don't have censorship, we have freedom of the press, but we do. And there was no issue where it was clearer than the issue of Palestine. It was absolutely clear that there were certain things you could not say in mainstream outlets. That, I think, has really changed. You know, an excerpt from this book was published in Politico. Exactly. Uh, 